This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Levi, Julian, Emmeline, Benton, and Rosemary. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Levi, who asks, what's your favorite part about Easter in the Bible? My favorite thing about Easter is the resurrection of Jesus, because his resurrection sums up the whole hope of the gospel from start to finish. Here's what I mean. The gospel is about our salvation from sin, which means our salvation from death, because death is the payment for sin. Jesus paid for our sin with his own death, but when he was raised to life, he defeated death. So the resurrection means our debt to sin has been paid, and our bondage to sin and death has been destroyed. Just like Jesus was raised from the grave to new life, those of us who believe in him will be raised from the grave to new life. Life after death. Life in the world to come, face to face with Jesus. That's what the good news is all about. And Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that his people will have that life. So Levi, that's why the resurrection is my favorite part about Easter. And now Julian asks, Is holy water a real thing with special spiritual properties? Julian, I guess it depends on what you mean by holy. In the Bible, holy means set apart for God's use. Water was used for cleansing in the Old Testament and obviously for baptism in the New Testament. And in the early church, people may have started praying to set apart the water of baptism in the same way that we pray to set apart the elements of the Lord's Supper. But the idea that these prayed-over elements derive special power or spiritual properties That came later, once people started thinking of grace not as God's favor, but as an abstract force that could inhabit or cling to objects. We don't think of grace that way. Instead, we see that God offers grace to those who receive the elements in faith. The elements themselves don't contain grace, and you can't transfer grace through the elements. Of course, Paul does warn us not to partake of the elements of communion unworthily, which means without faith. So you might wonder if you could say the same thing about baptismal water. If, for example, I splash it on someone who doesn't have faith, would it hurt them? Could the water protect me from evil, as some people believe, or even ward off vampires, as it does in the movies? Well, here's the thing. Paul warns against participating in the ritual without faith, not being exposed to the elements themselves. If you secretly bring some communion wine home and then trick an atheist into drinking it, that's not the same thing as a person coming to the table and participating in bad faith. I think the same logic would apply to the baptismal water. It's not a magic potion that works in any context. It's set apart specifically for the sacrament of baptism, and it doesn't retain any secret power apart from that. This is one of those illustrations, though, of the way that people are always trying to separate the power of God from the person of God. 
We want to attribute his power to some object so that we can use it for our own ends. But the power of God always comes from God, and it always works for him, not for us. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Imelyn. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. In the Nicene Creed, why do we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Emmeline, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me this question since we use the Nicene Creed in our church, even though we aren't Catholics, we're Presbyterians. I mean, shouldn't we be saying that we believe in one holy Presbyterian and apostolic church? Uh, If we say... Catholic, because that's the way the creed was originally written, then should we stop being Presbyterian and become Catholic instead? Well, let's dig into these questions. First, yes, indeed, the reason we say Catholic is because that's what the creed says. The whole point of clinging to the ancient creeds is that we want to be faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, historic Christianity, in other words. There are people who try to reinvent their faith to fit the times. Every generation reimagines a new version of the Christian religion. But we don't want to be like that. We want to remain faithful to the gospel handed down through the apostles from Jesus himself. But if that's the case, then isn't our use of the Nicene Creed undermining our Presbyterianism? Shouldn't we be Catholic instead if that's what the Creed says? Well, here's the thing. This is exactly right. We should be Catholic. And the truth of the matter is, we already are. In fact, the reason we use the Nicene Creed is because we are Catholic. If you know your church history, you might object to this and say, wait a minute, not every church that uses the Nicene Creed is Catholic. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, they confess the Nicene Creed, and Eastern Orthodox Christians, who finally broke off relations with Rome 500 years before the Reformation, would tell you that they preserve the original faith, not Rome. If I'm saying Presbyterians should be Catholics because of the Nicene Creed, am I also saying Eastern Orthodox should become Catholic too? Well, no, because they already are. Presbyterians are already Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox are already Catholic, according to the original meaning of the word. That's the key. Catholic today means something different than it did in the ancient world. In fact, according to one church historian, Catholic today means pretty much the exact opposite of what it used to mean. The original meaning of the word Catholic was universal. Sometimes people update the wording of the creed and say it this way, one holy universal apostolic church. But it's actually better to stick with the original because universal, although it is a synonym, doesn't quite capture the full sense of the word. Catholic meant literally according to the whole. In other words, In the ancient church, the way you recognize the true teaching of the apostles was to consider what was believed by the whole church. If a teaching was believed in one city or region but not the whole, then it was a pretty good sign that that interpretation was something new. It might be true or it might be false, but it wasn't core. It wasn't the common faith handed down to us by definition. 
This was how the early church guarded against false doctrine and outside influences. Ironically, the reason the church in Rome had such a good reputation in the early days was that it adhered to the faith handed down without adding and subtracting. It was a perfect example of the apostolic faith according to the whole. Now, over time, that did begin to change. As the elders became bishops and the bishops became popes, they innovated more and more. And this always led to tension with the other churches. As I said, eventually the churches in the East severed their relationship with the West. And then the Reformation tried but failed to restore the Western church to its original Catholic faith. Today, when we say Catholic, we mean Roman Catholic, a member of a distinct denomination. A lot of the beliefs we associate with Roman Catholicism were entirely unknown to the church leaders at Nicaea. They were added later, some during the Middle Ages, some after the Reformation, some not until the 1800s. But in the original sense of the word, every believer who confesses the faith contained in the ancient creeds of the church, which summarize the teaching of Scripture, is a Catholic Christian, a person who believes the faith that all the churches confessed in common. In an age where there's so much division in the church, some of it necessary, some of it not, we need all the reminders we can get of what we have in common. So whenever we confess that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, it's a reminder that we are connected to the ancient historic Christian faith and that all those whose faith is in Christ alone are united in his body the church. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Benton asks, have you gotten nervous when preaching or doing the big question thinking you might mess up? Definitely, Benton. In fact, I almost always get nervous, and when I'm not nervous, then I should be worried because it probably means I'm doing something wrong. Because frankly, you should be nervous when you preach or teach because this is serious. And I don't just think that I might mess up. I actually do mess up every single time. I say the wrong thing. I get my words mixed up. I say things that aren't as clear as they should be or not as accurate. That's a testament to my own imperfection, which is considerable. I'll never forget that you have to be discerning about what you hear me say. You have to compare it to Scripture, and you have to make allowances for my shortcomings. That's true for all of us, and being honest about it helps us have sympathy for one another. It helps us interpret each other's words as charitably as possible. And now Rosemary asks, Why do the kids sing on Palm Sunday, but not Easter? Well, Rosemary, I hope that kids in church are singing every Sunday. Whenever we're singing, you should be singing too. But I know what you mean. Why does our Sunday school choir sing during our Palm Sunday service instead of Easter Sunday? Well, I don't make the schedule, but I think I do have a little bit of an idea why it works this way. On Easter, we don't hold Sunday school classes. That's to make it easier for parents to get kids ready for church on Easter. But Sunday school is a time where we do a lot of rehearsal for choir. So it makes sense to be able to practice right before the service, which means on Palm Sunday rather than on Easter. 
But please, you should sing in every service, whether you're up front where everyone can see or in your seat where no one can tell. Our singing is a kind of musical prayer, and we should sing to the Lord every chance we get. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.